I think for just a little while, there will be pity for the wild. I think in places known as gay, in clubs, cabarets, and bars, Pierrot will serenade Pierrot with frantic drums. About 14 years ago, I was a failing musician driving through the darkness of northern Ohio. I flipped on the radio, and I heard the voice of Tennessee Williams. I was transported, totally transported, not just by his voice, but by the way that his voice kind of seamlessly overlapped and interwove with all of the other voices. It was a kind of spoken music that I had honestly never heard before. But that I now know, of course, is no big deal. It's just what Davy and Nikki do. This is their sound. This is Jad from Radiolab. The Kitchen Sisters are the original masters of the pixie dust that we all hope to have sprinkled on our heads. Welcome to Fugitive Waves. Lost recordings and shards of sound, along with new tales of remarkable people from around the world. We're the Kitchen Sisters, Davia Nelson and Nikki Silva. Today, the story of Tennessee Williams and the Pennyland recordings. We were in the Tennessee Williams suite of the Omni Royal Hotel in the French Quarter in New Orleans for the 13th annual Tennessee Williams Literary Festival. It was 1999. You have time or we rush for time. Why not I fix a uh, martini and you can look at We had back-to-back interviews lined up and were scheduled to teach a class that night. But listening back to the tape, it sounds like we took the drinks. Here's 12 of us meeting. We talked about his clothes. These are ballets. It was hard not to. Green. Green ballet loafers from Italy. They hold their shape good and you can tell their quality. And a $400 Versace yes, silk I shirt. I saw it in uh, Needless Markup. <laughs> That's Neiman Marcus. And it goes very well with my Versace mustard-colored jacket. His jewelry, a green a emerald in a beehive setting, was coordinated with his shoes. shoes. And this is a gorgeous little ring, a peridot. His face was tan and alcoholic, his white hair receding, and he wasn't nearly as handsome as his famous brother. But if you squinted, you could see a faint resemblance. Will you introduce yourself, say your name? I'm Dakin Williams, the only surviving member of the Williams family that produced Thomas Lanier Williams III otherwise known as Tennessee Williams. And my father called him Miss Nancy because he was a son of a sissy, because he didn't play baseball like I did, because he had had diphtheria as a child, and he could hardly use his legs at all until he was eight or 10 years old. And so naturally, he didn't engage in baseball. He started reading books a lot, too, at a very young age. And my mother used to censor them and sometimes she would grab a book bunch of them by D.H. Lawrence and return them to the library and throw them on the librarian's desk and said, look what you let my son have. (laughs) We found our way to Dakin by way of the Rogers and Hammerstein archive of recorded sound at the New York Public Library. We were there working on a story about a rare collection of wax cylinders recorded at the Metropolitan Opera in 1901 
by Lionel Mapleson, the opera's librarian. Some of the first live recordings of opera ever made. Archivist Donald McCormick closed the last of the drawers filled with fragile 100-year-old cylinders. We asked him what other secrets, what lost sounds lay in his collection. What does no one else know about but you? He stared into space. Well, there is that home recording of Angela Lansbury's audition with Jerry Herman for the role of Mame. That's high on my list, he said. And there are those eight cardboard acetate discs made by Tennessee Williams at a penny arcade in New Orleans in 1947. Bingo. The discs had been donated to the library by Tennessee's longtime friends Donald Wyndham and Sandy Campbell. Tennessee often stayed in their tiny New York apartment, and the cardboard records were found in a footlocker under the bed filled with things he'd left behind. They had never been broadcast or heard by the public. The following is a series of cardboard acetate discs recorded in a voiceograph recording booth at a New Orleans Penny Arcade in 1948. The label says 7A28. <laughs> Streetcar. 11th scene. Those cathedral jazz. Bong! The Tennessee Pancho Rodriguez and a couple of other people made in 1947 in Pennyland. They had a lot of little machines you could get, like the Lord's Prayer on a penny. And they made a record. Tennessee did some of his poetry. They did a parody from the scene of from Streetcar. Six A eight. Pancho singing. I'm Kenneth Holditch. I wrote uh, The Last Frontier of Bohemia, Tennessee Williams in New Orleans. Well, he was living with Pancho Rodriguez in 1946-47. Their relationship, was he a flamenco dancer? I think he and his brother Juan had an acrobatic act that the two of them did in New Orleans. They met at, at, at a reception for Tennessee. When Tennessee returned to New Orleans from New York, he was always retreating from his success, which he could not handle gracefully. And so he fled to New Orleans after the Glass Menagerie opened, and a lot of new friends came into the picture, and among them was Pancho at a cocktail party. 6A5, Princess Interview. The speakers are Tennessee Williams and Pancho. This is Vanilla Williams uh, interviewing Princess Rodriguez, who just arrived here from Monterey. Princess, what do you have to say about the trade here in this town? I have you gotten around much yet? Oh, yes, I have, Vanilla. I have gotten around. I've been cruising on Canal Street, you know. Oh, honey, you get off Canal Street. Miss Canal Street is no good. You should get on Mr. Royal or Mr. Bourbon. You should get up to the Personality Bar. It's a place for you girls. The Personality Bar? Yes, ma'am. You know, Princess Rodriguez, you get your ass up to the Personality Bar. <laughs> I am Lyle Leverage, the chosen biographer of Tennessee Williams. Pancho had a sense of humor. Tennessee being a sexual minority and Pancho being a Mexican, they both took their look at society as being preposterous in many ways. Pancho was given to temper tantrums, apparently. And on one occasion, when he was angry with Tennessee and Tennessee was gone, 
went into the closet with, with scissors and cut up all of Tennessee's clothes. At that time, when Tennessee met him, he was writing the play Streetcar Named Desire. And in Pancho, he had a, a kind of a role model of the character that he would eventually create in Stanley Kowalski. And uh, because of Pancho's dominance over him, he was playing out the role of Blanche Dubois. Even the thing about the kindness of strangers, that famous line, came out of uh, Tennessee having said, you bring strangers into our house. Pancho's reply to that was, some of my best friends were strangers. Tennessee Williams, when did you get the idea for this play? Everybody's talking about the name of it, of course. This play I started writing while the Glass Menagerie was running in Chicago. And after two or three weeks, I gave it up. I thought it was much too violent for the theater. I started a very quiet play after that, and whenever I'd get back in a violent mood, I'd return to work on the streetcar. A story ripped from the fabric of life, as earthy and violent as its unforgettable star. This record was not recorded in a penny arcade, but it was recorded in 1948. <laughs> Streetcar. Put your little foot, put your little foot, put your little foot right there. It's one o'clock, and here is Mary Margaret McBride. Tennessee Williams, his play, got absolutely good reviews from every single critic, and that's unusual this year. I like that man, too, the husband. Brando. Marlon Brando. Marlon. He's the most gifted young actor, yes, in the New York theater. Oh, he packs a wallet yeah, for me. He's dynamite, he really yes. is. Uh, of course, I know now there is a streetcar line named Desire. Yes, in New Orleans they call it Daisy Ray. The old people do. Oh, I yeah, see. It's French, you know. There are two streetcars that run along one track. One is named Desire, and the other is named Cemeteries. <laughs> <laughs> so they sum up all of life on those one tracks. <laughs> Can I help you, ma'am? Well, they, they told me to take a streetcar named Desire, and then transfer to one called Cemeteries. His uh, life was writing. First, as telling stories, he's a, a very small child in Mississippi. The older people would sit around after dinner and, and the porch and rock in chairs and, and swap stories. Then my brother would chime in with his two bits about jungles and tigers and crocodiles. And finally, he'd get scared himself. He said, it's so scary, I can't go on. <laughs> he wrote five to eight hours a day, usually seven days a week. There's a wonderful passage in which he said, I would work all morning, and that's when he was riding streetcar, and then spent with the rigors of creation, I would go around the corner to a bar and restaurant called Victor's, where I'd have a Brandy Alexander, and eat a sandwich and listen to Ink Spot's recordings on the jukebox. And then he would go over to Rampart Street and swim in the New Orleans Athletic Club, where they had an indoor pool. He swam every day. Tennessee did the same thing all the time. He wrote. He wrote and he drank. It wouldn't matter if he'd had a quarrel with his lover the night before and been up all night, or if he'd uh, been out on a binge and, uh, and had a hangover, he'd get up and go to his typewriter, and he broke down more machines. And when he died, they found a closet full of typewriters that he literally pounded to death. He loved to work to music. He always had a Victrola with him. He had his little collection of records because he liked to have background music when he wrote his work. 
It was more than a habit, it was a compulsion. It was something he had to do, like breathing in and breathing out. Six A two. He sympathized with the persecuted Jews. The speaker is Tennessee Williams. Young Connor went through the world with a bang. He slammed the doors and he shouted and he sang. And nobody stopped him because nobody dared and nobody liked him. But Jim never cared. He loved rye whiskey. He would drink it straight and he raped his woman because he couldn't wait. He shocked the neighbors. He gave him a fright when he ran out naked in the middle of the night and puked in the gutter and pissed on the lawn and sang body songs till the crack of dawn. He had two sons by a beautiful wife who killed herself with a butcher's knife. One son went mad and the other went blind. In the end, Jim Connor was quiet and kind. He gave up gambling and he gave up booze and he sympathized with the persecuted Jews. He lived to be 90 and he died in his sleep. The neighbors all gathered to pray and to weep. And his ashes were kept in a marble vase, because none of them remembered what a dirty louse he was. About the recordings that were made in Pennyland, uh, which still exists, by the way, on Royal Street. My dad, Louis Bosberg, started uh, New Orleans Novelty Company in the early 30s. Pennyland on Royal was mostly pinball games, ten balls for a penny, quiz machines, claw machines, fortune telling them to record your voice. You'd hear the balls bouncing off the thumper bumpers and the bells ringing, fun for all. He was asked, what first brought you to New Orleans? And he said, St. Louis, a city I loathe. I'm Kenneth Holditch, editor of the Tennessee Williams Journal. Glass Menagerie, of course, is set in St. Louis, and it is autobiographical, with the main characters being uh, based on Tennessee, on his mother, Miss Edwena, and on his sister, Rose, who lived until three years ago. She had a prefrontal lobotomy in the 40s, but she lived to be 87 and was the inspiration for much of his work. I think Tennessee saw a great deal of himself in Rose as he saw her deteriorate into mental disorder, he seemed to have felt that that was a possibility of something that might happen to him. 6A4, Heavenly Grass. The speaker is Tennessee Williams. At least of the walk in heavenly grass, all day while the sky soon I speak to the walk in heavenly grass all night while the stars pass. Then my feet come down to walk on earth. My mother cried in the Now my feet walk far and my feet walk fast. But they still got to get the heavenly did write those lyrics intended to be set to music, which Paul Bowles did. Bowles did the music for The Glass Menagerie, but he also did the music for the poems that Tennessee wrote called uh, Blue Mountain Ballads. Heavenly grass, my feet took a walk in heavenly grass all night while the distant stars rolled past. My feet came down and walked on earth and my mother cried when she gave me birth. Now 
He was a deeply religious person. He was brought up mainly by his grandfather, an Episcopal priest. The complexity of this man, his sexual nature and the rest of it, it's not cut and dried, the difference between heterosexual and homosexual. He lived in a the closet, a very big closet, and he went in and out of it as he pleased. That was his lifestyle, and uh, it worried people. They were bent being imprisoned for what he was doing, picking up numbers. He could uh, at any time been in a place like New York City, ended up in prison, as many people were, and many careers were being broken because of this. Lyle Leverage, author, Tom, the unknown Tennessee Williams. Well, I'm on a being from the South, having spent those very formative early years in the Mississippi Delta, which is a world of its own, I do know that Tennessee was fascinated by Elvis. And he wrote Orpheus Descending, hoping to get Elvis Presley to star in it on Broadway and put the guitar in the play for that reason. Colonel Parker, of course, would hear none of that because they weren't going to make enough money on a Broadway show. You know, he could turn out six of those movies. Well, in this picture of Tennessee and, and Elvis that Dick Levitt sent me, Tennessee is looking up at Elvis like a little puppy dog or something. They met in Hollywood. Tennessee was out there for the filming of Suddenly Last Summer, and Presley was making one of his movies. He played a soldier in it. And I saw that photograph, and I said, I don't believe the look on your face when you're meeting Elvis Presley. <laughs> he said, oh, he said, I think he's wonderful. He said, he's a great actor. Johnny Mahegan, Joanna Albers, and Tennessee Williams singing Down in the Valley. Trio, Down in the Valley. Down in the Valley. I didn't care more than words can say if I didn't care Tennessee Williams and the Pennyland Recordings was produced by the Kitchen Sisters Davia Nelson and Nikki Silva mixed by Jim McKee Thanks to Irene Herman for permission to use the music Paul Bowles composed for Tennessee Williams' Glass Menagerie Thanks to Randy Tom for Musical Fire. You've been listening to Fugitive Waves from the Kitchen Sisters. Stories from the flip side of history. Produced in collaboration with Tom Corwin. Fugitive Waves is part of Radiotopia from PRX, a network of the best story-driven, creative, cutting-edge radio shows on Earth. Shows like 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. The truth. Benjamin Walker, theory of everything. Welcome to Strangers. Love and Radio. Radio Diaries. And us, the Kitchen Sisters. Get to know your new favorite shows at radiotopia.fm. Radiotopia from PRX is made possible with support from the Knight Foundation and our launch partner, MailChimp, who celebrate creativity, chaos, and teamwork. If you're interested in supporting this and other shows like it, email sponsor at prx.org. If I didn't care, honey child, more than words can say, 
if I didn't care, would I feel this way? Darling, if this isn't love, then why do I thrill so much? And what is it that makes my head go round and round while my heart just stands still so much? If I didn't care, would it be the same? Would my every prayer begin and end with just your name? And would I be sure that this is love beyond compare? Would all this be true if I didn't care for? Radiotopia from PRX.